Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm Tim Cronin. We're here with Elise Holtzman. Hi, Elise. Hi, how are you? You are, and I'm reading from your bio, you're passionate about attorney success and happiness. You are the CEO of The Lawyer's Edge, transforming lawyers into rainmakers and leaders. So that's what we're going to talk about. You want to tell us more about yourself? Sure. I live outside New York City. I've lived in the northeast of the U.S. for my entire life, somewhere between New York and Baltimore. And after graduating from law school, I practiced in New York City at two big law firms in the area of commercial real estate transactions. So having nothing to do with uh, trial practice at all. And then through a series of events, I wound up grudgingly leaving law practice, primarily because back then, you know, there was nothing around to help advise women who wanted to practice law in big law firms, but also were interested in having families. So no women's initiatives, no women's bars, no women in partnership. There were very few women in partnership, no mentors who were women. I had amazing mentors. They were all men. They were absolutely fabulous. But I wound up leaving because I had a baby and I was trying to make it work. I'm married to a litigator, actually, a big law firm litigator. And so ultimately, I wound up going back to school and becoming certified in leadership and executive coaching. And so that's when I started The Lawyer's Ed, which has been in business for almost exactly 15 years now. You got to brag a little bit, Elise, about where you did your undergrad in law school. Do I really? Okay. So I, <laughs> I went to the University of Pennsylvania, Penn, in Philadelphia, where I was pre-med. I knew that I wanted to go to medical school. I think that I felt like that was one of my one of my choices. I think growing up in the family I grew up in, the choice was either you know lawyer or doctor. I chose doctor. Nobody said that to me, but that's what I felt like. And ultimately decided it wasn't the best fit for me, and wound up moving to New York to go to law school at Columbia. On your webpage. You talk about your focus on how lawyers can get what they really want from their careers. And I know that you have your own podcast. You talk to a lot of lawyers and through your coaching. What, what is it? And, and, and as a very overgeneralized, perhaps, question, what are lawyers looking for? I think that most lawyers are looking to do interesting work. I think they want to be jazzed about what they're doing when they get up in the morning. They want to do things that give them the opportunity to think, right? I think most lawyers don't want to do the same thing over and over again. Even if they become an expert in a particular area or a specialist in a particular area, they like variety. And I think that they want to have nice relationships with the people with whom they work. I think they want to have long-term nice relationships with their clients. And you know, I think they want to contribute to a, a good culture for the most part. You know, I think they also want to have the opportunity to enjoy life outside the office and, and have some balance, although I, I don't really believe that there's work-life balance. Maybe work-life integration is a better term. But I think people just want to do good work, be able to serve other people, enjoy the people that they're working with, and be able to enjoy some of the rewards outside the office. And sometimes that includes giving back to the communities in which they're involved. 
So I think it's pretty simple, right? I think that you could say that about most people. And, and Elise, one of the things you talk about is business development, rainmaking. I think the more the more business as an attorney, you know, whether you're on the plaintiff side or the defense side, that you bring in to the firm, the more freedom you may have. So can you talk a little bit about one of your suggested questions is what are the three pillars of business development success? This is one of my favorite topics. And I think it's partly because of what you just said, which is that we know that in the law, people who are able to develop a book of business have freedom, as you said. They have freedom not just outside the office, but they have the what I call the power of choice, which is the power, not Machiavellian, icky kind of power, but the, the personal power to call the shots in their own career, to be able to work with the kinds of clients you most enjoy working with, to be able to decide who's going to be on your team of lawyers to help you help you achieve success for yourself and for your clients. It helps you have a seat at the table so that you can help make determinations about what the future of the firm is going to be, what direction the firm is going to go in. You get to be typically a decision maker where for whatever reason, rightly or wrongly, if you don't have that book of business, you don't necessarily have the opportunity to have your voice heard. You're not necessarily going to be put on the most important committees. You're not going to be invited to be managing partner of a firm. Again, whether that makes sense or not, right? Because just because you're a big rainmaker doesn't mean you know how to run a business. But that's the way it is. And so I do think that it's important for private practice lawyers, whether they're plaintiff's attorneys or defense attorneys, to understand that that is what the lay of the land looks like. That's the reality. And to not sit back and wait and hope to develop a book of business, to, but to be intentional and proactive about doing that. And so you mentioned the three pillars of business development. And I talk about this frequently because I think one of the challenges, I know one of the challenges, is that law school doesn't teach us this stuff. So everyone listening or most people listening uh, are attorneys who have gone to law school. And so we know that what they give us in law school is essentially two things. First, they give us a foundation in the law. So we take constitutional law and torts and contracts. And I actually have an adult child who is a 1L in law school, poor thing. And she's taking some of those things right now. And then the second thing is that they teach us how to quote unquote, think like a lawyer, as I like to say, so you can never think like a normal person again. And they give you those two things and they shove you out the door and they say, congratulations, you're a lawyer, go have a great career. Unfortunately, we learn that there's a lot more to it and that we haven't been taught those things. So what I like to do is to give people a structure for their business development activities. It's kind of, and you know, many lawyers are very structured thinkers and we like categories. So I offer up these three categories. The first pillar of business development is all about relationship development. It's about nurturing and growing relationships. And in this context, I mean two different things. Nurturing is nurturing the relationships you already have. People that are in your network, whether you went to college with them, law school with them, have worked with them in the past. They're people that you know from a community board, your house of worship, your you know local neighborhood, whatever it may be. And then the second is growing relationships because over time, you wanna keep meeting people and kind of freshen up your relationships, meet new people, be able to introduce them to one another, et cetera. No matter who you are, it is my belief that you are not going to have a solid book of business without developing relationships and being proactive about doing that. And that's all about, you know, we could get into a whole thing 
just about that pillar, but it's really all about giving without necessarily having the expectation of receiving from any given person. You will receive over time. It may not come exactly from where you expect it to come from. So it's not tit for tat relationship development. Then pillar two is about raising, is be, about becoming a visible expert, raising your profile in the legal and business communities so that people actually understand what it is you do and that you're a leading authority in that area and can solve people's problems. So what I like to say about that is you don't want to be a best kept secret. If you're sitting in your office toiling away and doing really, really good legal work, but nobody knows about you, and I'm doing pretty good legal work, but I'm out there speaking on panels and writing articles and appearing on podcasts and sharing my expertise and value with people, who's the expert? The expert is me because I'm the one that has the visibility. And so I may not even be as good, as good a lawyer as you are, but because nobody knows who you are, you're not developing the business. And then pillar number three, I call the three T's of leadership growth. Because there are things you need to do to help you grow as a leader that are very relevant to business development. And the three T's of leadership growth are thoughts, time, and team. And so thoughts really is about the mindset. You know, there are some people who feel that sales and business development are unseemly and icky and, you know, unpalatable. And so they're not likely to pursue those things. Um, some people feel like it's all about being aggressive and what am I going to get from somebody and how am I going to convince them that they should work with me? That's also a challenging mindset. Um, so getting your thoughts in the right place when it comes to business development is very important. Then there's time. And so the biggest challenge that I hear coming up for people, the biggest obstacle to success for many people is at least they claim time. You don't understand, I'm so busy. You don't understand, I have so much work to do on my desk. I don't have time to go around hobnobbing with people or writing articles. The challenge is that if you don't view part of your job as being a business developer, you probably are not gonna devote the time to it. You're not gonna find time. I don't think there's a lawyer on the planet who has accidentally found time uh, on a regular basis just hanging out waiting to be filled. And so it's important to be intentional about creating time and making time for business development. And then the third T is team. And while in law firms, we often don't talk about, we don't really use the terminology team. You know, they tend to use that more in companies. But who, is, who are you training, right? Who are you delegating to? Who are you training? Who are you lifting up and giving opportunity to? Who is going to be your right-hand lieutenant type person? Who will run through a wall for you and for your clients so that you can free your time up for the highest and best use of your time, which is doing the, the most sophisticated legal work, not necessarily all the legal work, perhaps running your firm depending on what your role is and engaging in business development activities. I'm going to make a, a wild assumption here that a lot of your clients are excellent attorneys who come to you because they are not satisfied they're going through some sort of struggle or frustration. Uh, could you give us an example of the maybe just a, a caricature or a, a description of, of, of who presents to you? Often I have junior to mid-level partners come to us who say, I love this firm, I want to stay, I like the work I'm doing, and I really thought I'd have business right now, and I don't. 
And I know that in order for me to make equity partner, some of them are, are income partners, in order for me to make equity partner, in order for me to be able to command the kind of compensation that I want to command, in order for me to be able to step into a leadership role in this firm, I need to have a book of business. Instead of just doing someone else's work. Where you, exactly. And you get stuck. Well, then, yeah, you can get stuck. And again, you don't have that power of choice. So if the firm decides that they don't want to work with you anymore for some reason, if you decide you want to earn more compensation, if you decide you don't like the culture, for example, and you'd like to go somewhere else, of course, the first question they're going to ask you is, what's your book of business? You know, where's your book of business? And so that is a challenge. Now, there are some people, of course, who are okay with that. They don't want to be rainmakers. They don't want to be business developers. They simply want to do good work. The challenge is that I think most people don't understand the dynamic. And so they're making that choice without recognizing that maybe that's not the choice they really want to make. Because I think that people get frustrated. It's like, I'm doing such good work and I'm so loyal to the firm and I work so hard for my clients. Why am I not moving up the way I want to? It's not fair that I'm not making this kind of compensation, et cetera, et cetera. And so I wish it were fair, but that's not the way it works. And so I think to some extent, turning the light bulb on for people, I think is very important. And then having them understand that they can develop business in a way that makes sense for them. You know, sometimes people will also look around and say, well, you know, I come from a different background than these other people. You know, I didn't grow up with a silver spoon in my mouth or a little black book in my pocket. I'm the first one in my family to go to college, let alone law school. And so what I say to people is the principles of business development don't change. What changes is each individual's approach to it. How do you leverage those principles and make them work for you depending on your geography, depending on your practice area, your likes and dislikes? You know, are you an introvert? Are you an extrovert? Do you enjoy writing? Do you enjoy speaking? There are many different ways you can approach this. But, you know, my soapbox issue is that I think it's important for people to at least go into this with their eyes wide open. If you, I've, I've actually had, when I've, I've worked with a couple of law firms, several law firms where we've been coaching multiple people, and I once had a guy say to me, listen, Elise, I bill 3,000 hours a year, and I feel like that's my value to the firm, and I have absolutely no interest in being a rainmaker. So they can either try to teach me how to be a rainmaker and expect far fewer hours from me, or they can just let me keep billing my 3,000 hours. And my view is, as long as he understands what he's getting and what potentially he's given up, giving up, then that's fine. Which is not having to bill 3,000 hours a year. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, it's, right, exactly. I mean, I would give that up in a heartbeat, but, yeah, but right. you know, he, he decided that that was, that was for him, and that's what he continues to do. So we do, I was going to say largely, but it's exclusively plaintiff's work here. I guess my side has always been it's trying cases and, and getting results. And then, you know, we'll speak at seminars and do other things to try to get our name in front of people's faces. But I guess selfishly, do you have any advice for me or people on people on our side? Because it's, it's a different approach, right, than on the defense side of how you build a book of business and develop relationships and, and, and get your name and face out there to get the kinds of cases. I mean, yeah, we, no we have one-off cases, it. you know. Right. One-off cases. And so you're not necessarily having clients that you're trying to develop long-term, you know, years-long institutional-type relationships with. Also, many plaintiff practices obviously are, you know, they're, they're business to consumer, right? They're B2C rather than B2B. 
you you know you may be representing businesses, but many many plaintiffs' practices are representing individuals. So you know, for example, I work with a firm where they have a lot of their attorneys are representing individuals, but then they also have some folks who are doing class actions, and so that's a whole other level of of challenge. What I think is that it goes back to, it still goes back to the pillars, right? What sorts of relationships are you developing? So for example, are your clients, once you are finished working with them, once the matter is is settled or decided, are these people feeling that they care enough about you, that they know, like, and trust you enough to be willing to refer you to other people, right? Are you continuing over time to deliver value to them in some way, whether it's sharing uh, a podcast with them, connecting with them on LinkedIn and putting stuff on LinkedIn that they might be interested in, sending them some information a couple of times a year, you know, without stalking people, right? There's a fine line between delivering value to someone and stalking somebody. But have you developed enough of a relationship with those clients that they feel like they know you and trust you enough to be willing to refer you to other people? And also, do they have top of mind awareness? or rather, do you have top of mind awareness with them? So for example, if you represented someone six years ago and they've got to recommend an attorney to someone they care about, are they going to even remember you, right? Have you just fallen off the face of the earth? So I think that there is opportunity there for plaintiff side lawyers to make sure that they are continuing to have some relationship with people that they've represented in the past, represented in the past even if it's in a very small way. And then I do think that the, the visible expertise is important, right? If I now get a referral from somebody, or if I do go online to try to look at this trial attorney, am I seeing that this trial attorney writes on the topic, speaks on the topic, you know, has handled certain kinds of cases that I'm interested in? There's credibility there when you're able to demonstrate a body of work. And so the body of work, of course, as you point out, could consist of cases that you have successfully concluded. It could consist of articles you've written, podcasts that you've been on. People don't necessarily dive deeply into each, each single instance of you doing something, but they do see a body of work. And the body of work says, oh, well, you know, this guy is everywhere. He must really know his stuff. And I will say one last thing about that as many years ago, I talked to a personal injury attorney, and we were talking about how he reaches out to the community, and he did many of the standard things like having billboards up and you know bus benches and that sort of thing. And I said, okay, I understand that you do all of this stuff. Where do your best clients come from? They come from other lawyers. Right. And so he said, oh, my best clients, those come from relationships and referrals. Yeah. And so I think that even even with plaintiff's practices, that's the thing to keep in mind. And so it may be, so if we look at pillar number one and talk about relationships, if you know that 97% of your referrals or 85% of your clients are coming through referrals from other attorneys, then where should you be spending your time developing relationships and letting people know what you do, right, with other attorneys? It's, it's obvious, but sometimes people don't look at their history. So a really important question to ask yourself as an attorney, regardless of what side of the, the fence you may sit on, is what's my history, right? Where are my clients coming from? And so making sure that you're always noting where your clients are coming from. Are they coming from lawyers? Are they coming from 
accountants? Are they coming from financial planners? Are they coming from doctors? And under that category, who are the several people who are the ones who refer to you over and over and over again? And so when you're nurturing relationships or you're speaking for groups or you're writing articles for publication, making sure that you are targeting the people who are over and over again demonstrating that they are already willing and not just willing, but able to refer clients to you. I want to uh, follow up with what Tim said. When you're a trial lawyer on the plaintiff side, you, and this probably falls under your visible expertise pillar, you, you have this opportunity for expensive signaling. If you win a case in a big city, that gets known. People talk about it, and you are at risk. You know, if you go into that big case and you don't win, you know, people will notice that too. So it's, it's truly expensive signaling. There is, a, there is an expertise that is command, it is broadcast, I think, more than a, a thousand bus stops or billboards. There's, there's no way to, to compare to winning a difficult case. Word gets around. And I'm, and I'm just, I'm saying that because then when you mentioned there are transactional attorneys, they don't really have that or really anything like that, Comparable do they? To that. Yeah, it's just, it's a totally different game. You can't go right. around and, and have an article. I like, I just wrote a really complex contract. Yeah. You know, that's close to this merger. Right. Right. And so there is some of that, right? Some of that winds up being in the press and there are people who will post on LinkedIn, you know, so excited that, you know, we successfully concluded this matter and blah, blah, blah. But to your point, it's, there's not an opportunity typically for transactional lawyers to kind of crow about, if you will, what it is that they've accomplished. And so when I talk about this idea of writing articles and speaking for groups and those sorts of things that do raise your visibility, what I'm talking about is really teaching and delivering value. So for example, if I conclude a transaction and it was complicated and involved you know, all kinds of local counsel and there were all these issues that came up, I might write an article about five things that every real estate developer in the state of Iowa needs to know about building a shopping center. You know, before you build a shopping center, here are five things you should do. Right. And so what happens is you're, you're not saying, hey, I did this brilliant thing and closed this amazing deal. What you are saying is here's some advice that I think I want to give people who are going into this area and everybody goes, oh, well, I guess she must know about real estate developers in Iowa. If she's giving us this advice, let me look a little deeper into this attorney. One of the things I know you speak about, Elise, is how there are some, I guess, more difficult challenges for women lawyers in this area. And obviously you're talking to two guys. So, um, but I wanted to give you the opportunity to talk because I know that's a significant part of what you talk about and what you do. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Sure. So the, the question really comes up, you know, is business development somehow different for women lawyers? And I have two answers to that, which are both going to be very helpful. The first one is no, and the second one is yes. <laughs> so, so the no, it just goes back to what we were talking about, right? The principles of business development are the same regardless of who you are. So it's about the relationships. It's about people knowing you know, who you are, how you serve people, what you're capable of delivering, and, and some of those, those leadership growth skills that we talked about. What's different for women is often around 
the systems and the structures that have been set up over time and the ways in which we've been socialized. So I'll give you an example. I, I just, in the last couple of weeks, I moderated two panels in the last couple of weeks of very sophisticated women lawyers, almost all of whom are managing partners at their firms. And we know that that's very unusual, particularly in large firms and becoming less so in smaller to mid-sized firms. And so we talked about the ways in which we've been socialized and some of the ways in which we can hold ourselves back unwittingly because of the messages that we received growing up. So let's go back to the structure piece just for a minute. So there are times when women are still excluded from what I would call, you know, halls of power. And it doesn't mean that men are sitting around plotting to make this happen. I mean, most men that I talk to wouldn't even dream of doing anything like this intentionally. I think people have their hearts in the right place and most people are not trying to exclude people from, from anything. There are people who are, but we're not really focusing on them. And so an example that I have for you is the managing partner of a law firm, a regional law firm with about 175 attorneys. She started at the firm, so she was you know, homegrown, took on all sorts of leadership roles over the years, and her male partners thought she would be the best person for the managing partner job, and they really strongly recruited her, and, and she wound up being in that position. She told me a couple of years in that she noticed that a lot of the male partners would get together and do things with one another socially, and they didn't invite her. And she said to them one day, why is it that you do these things and you don't ask me to join in, right? You've got 20 guys from the firm who are doing this stuff and you don't ask me to join. And they were genuinely- Did they say they didn't think that she'd want to go? I'm sorry to cut you out. Yeah, that's what I thought you were going to say. That's exactly what it is. And so they made the decision, again, with their hearts in the right place. Maybe they were playing golf. Maybe they were going to a ball game. I don't know. But they made the decision that, oh, she wouldn't want to join us. And so what result there, of course, is that she's not involved in those conversations. And so again, not necessarily intentional, but it happens. The thing about socializing is really important. There's a book written by a woman named Reshma Saujani called Brave, Not Perfect. And she's done a uh, TED Talks on the subject. She's very well known for this in certain circles. And what she says, and we know from research, is that even today, girls are socialized differently than boys, right? So you have a little girl, and and most people are socializing their little girls, again, you know, not doing it intentionally, to kind of be perfect, right? Get straight A's, be polite to everyone, be helpful, say yes, don't talk too loud, right? Don't be in people's faces because that's not ladylike. Instead of whereas, be bold. Right, Instead of whereas boys are kind of socialized to, hey, you know, jump off the top of the monkey bars and get dirty and play with worms and, you know, even break the rules sometimes because after all, boys will be boys. You know, speak up for yourself, advocate for yourself. And so what happens is, And again, well-meaning parents are doing this. What happens is the perfectionism actually works really well for girls for a while because the teachers love them and they get put on committees and all these great things happen. They get good grades and they go to the good schools and all of that. They do really well as junior associates, many of them. But what happens is over time, as their roles start to change and as they are either wanting to be in leadership roles or being called upon to be in leadership roles, that perfectionism starts getting in their way. Because when you're trying to be Miss Perfect, you are not practicing skills that we know we need in leadership, such as taking risks, willingness to be wrong, willingness to not have consensus all the time, willingness to say no to things that don't serve you or don't serve others. 
And so that becomes more and more challenging for women. And so what you find is women who don't feel like they can ask for the business, don't feel like they should take on a leadership role because after all, maybe somebody knows more than they do. And so in that way, some of these things like becoming a rainmaker, like running law firms, like stepping into leadership roles can be more challenging for women, not because they're not capable of doing the job, of course, but because the messages that they've received can be so overwhelmingly you know, impactful that they kind of can't see themselves out of that way of behaving. So we're a plaintiff's largely personal injury firm. We do class actions, we do some mass torts, we do some commercial litigation, but our bread and butter is catastrophic injury and death, high value personal injury cases. And most of our high value cases come from referrals from other lawyers in the community. And we ha we're pretty evenly split. We have half men, about half men and half women. And the women in our firm are excellent at business development. They're very involved out in the legal community. And the younger ones here have a great mentor here in Amy Gunn. And they have a podcast here, too, called Heels in the Courtroom, that, where they talk about a lot of these issues. I say that only to suggest, I'm going to mention your name to them, that maybe you should be on their podcast to have more time to focus on this particular topic. I love that there is somebody there who is mentoring and sponsoring the younger women. I mean, we know that sponsorship is very, very important for for all attorneys and particularly for women attorneys, right? When you, as I said earlier, you know, I didn't see women ahead of me doing what I wanted to do. When you can see people who look like you that are ahead of you, when you can have conversations with them that you wouldn't necessarily be comfortable having with somebody else, that can be very, very helpful for the development of more junior attorneys. We're gonna take a, a break here and we really appreciate that you've agreed to come back and join us for another episode. Thank you again for this good conversation. Thanks so much for having me. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Beef. And I'm Tim Cronin. Join us next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. At The Simon Law Firm PC, we believe in the power of pooling resources in order to create powerful results. We often lend our trial skills and experience to lawyers around the country to achieve better results for their clients. Our attorneys welcome the opportunity to work with you on your case, offering vast resources, seasoned litigators, and a sterling reputation. You can contact us at 314-241-2929. And if you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And subscribe today, because the best lawyers never stop learning. <laughs>